This is Citizen Reporter, program 396 for the 24th of October, 2011. A quick note for anyone that's listening for the first time or second time, and you're just getting into it, I'm very glad to have you aboard, to have you listening, and I hope very much that you keep listening, because I find that a rewarding experience to get to know you're out there and you to get the new content. I noticed in the survey that many people just go to the website and press play and listen. And as good as that is, I wanted to let you know no, in case you didn't, there's an easier way. You can subscribe, and we're talking internet subscribe, free, so that every time there's a new program, it comes to you in your media player, in your feed reader, whatever you use. Hopefully you use something, because the internet is big, and it's nice to have tools and ways to make things come to you, so you don't have to spend the time going to me. All right, without further ado, we go to the program, and at a time of so much global crisis, we're going to one key area of the world, Chile. It's about having the conversation. It's about mutual respect. And one of the most unfortunate things of the politics of the moment is the respect has died. We define each other by what we're not. We argue against each other. We don't listen. Look at the blog comments people leave against anything that anyone says. The vitriol, the hatred, the anger. We need to get past that. Otherwise, the same people continue to win. everybody. Thanks for joining us once again, citizenreporter.org. And today we're talking about Chile. It's been a while since I've done a show uh, regarding Chile, probably since the last time our dear guest was on. Uh, without further ado, uh, on the line from, are you in Santiago, Nick Farr? Yes, right now I am in Santiago. How's it going, Mark? It's going well. I'm glad to hear you from you, not only for the show, but also for to hear from my friend and hear what he's doing. Um, you brought up an issue that I haven't been uh, following the way I should. Uh, people often bring things to me. I'm glad. I'm thankful for it, but I'm not always as, as informed as I should be. And that is the protests that have been taking place in Chile for several months now on the issue of education. And I want to kind of explain this, especially for the audience that doesn't know anything, and then we can move from there, maybe informing those who have heard bits and pieces. So, first of all, I mean, have you been hearing about this since, more or less? I mean, we can't say beginning, because education has been a problem for a long time there. Yeah, um, it's the first I really heard about it was when I was talking with my cousins, and he said, oh yeah, we've been out of school for a couple of weeks because the school is on strike. And I thought, Why, how, how can you be out of classes for several weeks because of a strike? And that, that first got my attention uh, sort of focused on the issue. And as he started explaining it, he said that um, most of the students at the University of Chile, where he's going to... Um, decided to just stop going to classes um, in support of this strike that's demanding free university education for everybody, um, for every eligible uh, high school graduate in Chile, um, which is 
an amazing thing in the fact that they've been um, on strike for four months with the full support of the faculties of the major um, universities here in Chile. Uh, and on top of free education, another one of the major goals is to reform the two-tiered university system in Chile. Um, it's, I guess, for those of you in California, yeah. it's a bit like uh, it is in California, you have, but even worse, you have a certain number of very prestige, a very small number of very prestigious public schools, a larger number of prestigious private schools, which are very expensive, and then there's the rest of the system, which there hasn't been as much uh, investment or isn't of as uh, high quality as the rest of the university system. And so the first major thing that the people are... Yeah. Oh, go, go ahead. No, the way I heard it explained and, and have read it is, I mean, one of the big differences between Chile and a lot of the world where we have... Even before university, you know, we have public school and maybe we have private school. And within private school, there are a few t different types. Um, Chile has had this, it looks like a three, uh, three different type of school system. Even I'm talking before university where it's, uh, help me out, it's, it's, uh, there's uh, such thing as a local municipal school. And that is, uh, as it sounds, from your city, um, I think free. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, it's a, the same as in the... And then yeah. you have... Um, then you have this this private school that is government subsidized, national government, I suppose, and um, you may or may not, depending on which school you go to, where it is, pay a, a tuition. Yeah, that, that's correct. I, I guess the it's it's yeah. and then there's a third level, which is this. Um, Sorry, it's the third level is also related to private. So go, go ahead, Nick. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's kind of similar to what's happening in the U.S. now with regards to charter schools. Um, you know, and I guess now the way it is with uh, pre-university education or pre-college education, you have the public schools, which are generally underfunded, and especially in more urban areas, they're not the best places to go. Then you have these charter schools, which are a mixture of government funding, tuition, waiver. They, they could be funded at any different number of levels. And then you have the private schools, which are expensive, elite, exclusive, and don't uh, don't provide access to that many people. Um, in Santiago itself, depending on the, the neighborhood or community, the differences might not be that big between them. Uh, of course, in poor areas, the differences are, are much, much larger. What, where the differences are really distinct are in the rural areas. And I'm going to give the example of San Pedro de Atacama, where we were um, for three days on vacation, just the, uh, the past three days. Um, there they have a liceo, which is sort of like a middle school, high school. Mm -hmm. um, and they're one of the few cities that's that large to have a liceo inside their town. It would be the equivalent of, say, uh, before that school was built, they'd have to go to a town 150 kilometers away to go to high school, which, of course, is impractical to go there and come back every single day. Um, and San Pedro de Atacama is one of the larger cities in Chile. Chile is a very long country. Far and away, most of it is very, very rural. And what the, the problems people have, especially for people that don't live in urban areas, is that even if they could pay for um, – for certain uh, private education, access to it is limited for the vast majority of the population that's outside of Santiago. And it, within Santiago, um, it can be limited basically by where you live in the city. And and that's uh, mm. I mean we you, mm. we face similar things in school districts in the U.S. But really, access to education for the vast majority of people 
um, is getting much, much harder at all levels uh, instead of getting much easier. And that's um, the primary thing that the protesters are focusing on. Their, their primary focus is university education, but their ultimate goal is to reform the entire system to make it much more even. Mo- so I just lost you there for a second uh, to make it much more, I, I think you, you were saying accessible or maybe you said affordable. Okay. The goal of the protests um, primarily is to make university education free and accessible, but the larger goal of the whole movement is to make education at all levels um, more accessible and more affordable for the population. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in Chile, education is is quite uh, is regarded as quite good in the outside world, I believe, especially for Latin America, some of the some of the best in the region. Yeah, it, it is. But it's. The stratification is not nearly as evident um, to the outside world. And at the same time, saying that uh, the education system in Chile is one of the best or perhaps the best in Latin America, sadly is not saying a whole lot. That when you compare... when you compare the education system in Chile uh, to, say, the first world um, in terms of access and affordability, when you look at the large population, especially where there are large centers of uh, young people, people of um, the age to go to school, um, it's, not, uh, it's not nearly as good and not uh, and increasingly less accessible and affordable for a lot of people when you look at the demographics. Because, of course, the population growth in rural areas is going to be much stronger than in urban areas, just as in almost any um, any example of a first world nation. Uh, mm. You know, I, I can't speak to most of Europe, but at least in the United States, you see more people outside of cities or in the suburbs having two, three, four children, whereas in urban centers, people of childbearing age are often not having children at all. Yes. Um, let's let's talk about some of the the strategies and the tactics. You mentioned uh, that you had a family member that was uh, not in school as there was a strike. Uh, one of the tactics that I've read a lot about that is really interesting uh, and you don't often hear about, I think, in the places that we've been living, um, and that's the occupation of high schools. I know it, it fits with the whole Occupy uh, global movement, but uh, it, it, throughout Chile, apparently, students are going into their high school and, and setting up shop. You know, I'm gonna, we're going to stay here. Yeah, it, it, the funny thing, I should send you some pictures of it later, but the, the central sort of headquarters building of the University of Chile uh, was occupied four months ago by students. Yeah. Uh, and the funny thing about it is that they have a very good relationship with the people who are guarding the building. Uh, the building itself was abandoned right after the earthquakes by the university. So the only people who were in it were security guards and people who, you know, custodians, people who were taking care of the building. Uh, university students at the University of Chile occupied it and they've made it a working home. You know, you, you'd think that, or I guess the popular view of uh, occupiers is to take over a building and to trash it and, and do all these other things. But they're taking actually incredibly good care of an old building, and they have an incredibly good relationship with the security staff that was hired by the University of Chile to keep the building sort of safe and maintained. Uh, and they have a lot, a lot like you'd see in Occupy Wall Street. They have people who are in charge of cooking, people who are in charge of comfort, people who are in charge of all of the various daily functions in a working society in a building like that. And hmm. 
it's a, it seems like a very fun atmosphere. People are playing games. People are holding classes of their own. Obviously, not official university classes, but there's lots of education. There's lots of music. There's lots of food, and there's lots of support from the faculty of the University of Chile and from people who are just passing by. Since the main house um, is less than a kilometer away from La Moneda, which is sort of the equivalent of the uh, of the White House in Chile. That's where the president and the executives um, have their offices. And another reason La Moneda is famous is because it was the site of um, a lot. It was basically the, the building that was taken over during the coup, um, which toppled Allende, and another activity called Tanquetazo, which was sort of a predecessor to that where um, a certain army officers had taken tanks and tried to take over La Moneda in an attempted coup shortly before the actual coup that Pinochet and the junta was responsible for. Yeah. As I did a lot of reading, um, I, I learned that this education system, for anyone who's thinking like, well, they've had this for so long, uh, actually a lot of it was put in place only under Pinochet. So during his time, and that's, that means between the 70s and, and well, 1990. Uh, so it's not, it's not something that's been in place for so long. No, well, I guess in the grand scheme of things, no, it hasn't. Um, but, <laughs> uh, but when you think about um, a lot of the reforms that Allende tried to do were never actually successfully put into place. Um, <clears throat> one of the reasons that – or one of the historical reasons that people cite – uh, where Allende lost support of the Catholic Church was when they tried to do a lot of the education reforms that uh, that the strikers are asking for right now. Another interesting fast of, about all this, uh, which is sort of reopening up a classic divide in Chilean society, is that the student protests themselves are led by an incredibly charismatic, incredibly attractive leader <laughs> who's an avowed communist – Mm -hmm. um, which, of course, which, you know, sidetracks the issue for a lot of people, just as you see in the United States, um, when it comes to arguments between, you know, more progressive and more conservative or, or left and right wing, um, the left will say the system is broken for X, Y, and Z reasons. And then the right will throw a perhaps more distracting uh, um argument that doesn't directly address and so I, I'm just noticing in how my family's been discussing it, you know, he says oh, this is part of a communist takeover that Camila Vallejo is trying to sort of restart the communist revolution we're going back to the blah 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 and it goes off from there without discussion of um, the education system and its failings in Chile. Also, another thing right now is that Piñera, the president of Chile um, is very, very conservative and sort of the probably the most conservative leader of Chile in the post-Pinochet era. Mm -hmm. um, which, um, of course, is, I guess, exacerbating the same kind of tensions here in Chile that you have anywhere else in the world. Um, the funny thing about Chile is that the middle class here is still very strong. Unemployment is very low. Um, that uh, The government budgets of Chile, even though they're very tied to the price of copper, are still very conservative. Chile has a balanced budget that automatically adjusts for um, issues in the price of copper, which is the main source of revenue for the government. Mm -hmm. um, and in 
good times when Bachelet was in power, uh, sort of, you know, maybe the mid two, th- the equivalent of the mid two thousands in the U.S., she became very unpopular for not spending a lot of the. <laughs> uh, a lot of the excess profits when copper prices were really, really high. Instead, the government saved those, and that's what they're using now to pay for a lot of different things. Um, and they're using those reserves to sort of make up for the fact that prices in copper have gone down along with a lot of other commodities in the world economy. Um, but at the same time, you're seeing evidence of the problems that are afflicting people in the United States. You have a lot of unemployment especially among recent college graduates. And that I think mm-hmm. one of the big things fueling the Occupy movement right now is the fact that people who have done everything right, who have gotten good grades in high school, who have gone to good colleges, who have taken out loans to pay for college, are coming out right now and finding that even though they did everything society asked them to, there's nothing for them at the end of that. You know, yeah. the best jobs that they can find are in the service industry. And a lot of times mm-hmm. people who went to college, got a four-year degree, or even got a master's degree, end up working for under the management of people they went to high school with that never got any kind of education beyond high school, mm-hmm. which you know, I, I find particularly perverse and which is why I think we're only seeing you know, the, the sort of the tip of the iceberg of the Occupy movement. Yeah. I, I don't, that, was, that was a little bit long. <laughs> No, but the, the, well, actually, you, you arrived at the point that is of interest, and I think, you know, I see connections sometimes in, in a lot of different protests going on in different places. Um, when it comes to the one in Chile, let's see how, if I phrase this right. It, it, do you notice, like in the Chilean media, for example, that when they're reporting on this, depending on the media source, of course, that you'll actually hear mm-hmm. about. Uh, the demands. I mean, it's different with Occupy Wall Street. A lot of people have spoken about this. Demands uh, are a different matter there. But here, in the Chilean situation, do they say, you know, we, for example, we've occupied this high school and we're staying here, or this university building, and we're staying here because, uh, or until this list of demands, especially these essential points, are met by the government, so we know who we're waiting for. Um, because even when I browse like their websites, I went to Education 2020, uh, which is an interesting, I mean, really well uh, uh, laid out website. And there it is, the demands of what they want. So it seems like, okay, it's very clear what needs to happen here. If it happens is the question. Um, it, it is clear that the students, and that's another thing I think that separates this movement from Wall Street, is that uh, this movement has a very clear immediate goal. And that is free university education for everybody of age in Chile. Of course, they have additional goals, such as reform of the entire education system. But uh, just a week ago, they went into negotiations with um, the education ministry. And they tried to negotiate down the point. They said, okay, well, we'll reduce it by half as much. Or we'll give everybody you know, the equivalent of, say, $2,000 a month. And the... The leader of the protest, Camila Vallejo, was, nope, we want it free for everybody. Free, free, free. That's, and they were very, very clear on that point, and they're not going to stop striking until they reach that goal. Um, yeah. And about the reporting in Chile, it's very interesting. You, it, it's about as polarized as it is in the United States when you take a step back and look at it, although there, I guess in the U.S., we. We don't really have as popular 
I guess, a source of news uh, on, from a progressive side. You know, if you have a lot of smaller progressive outfits that are pushing things out. I, I would not, while of course Republicans might disagree with me, I would not call the, the New York Times a progressive outlet. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you look at the, the two major newspapers in Chile, um, El Mercurio, which is famously right-wing, and La Tercera, which is just as famously left-wing, um, El Mercurio is focusing on the leader, Camila Vallejo, who's very charismatic but is a communist. And all of what they're saying and all of what um, El Mercurio is talking about is the riots, the protests, the horrible things that are happening, the fact that people who want to go to school can't and that this is the latest communist takeover, OMG, the world is going (laughs) to hell. (laughs) <laughs> and you have La Tercera, which is actually focusing on the fact that a lot of people who are going to school can't pay for it. They can't afford it. Um, <clears throat> I'm sorry. Excuse me. They can't afford to go to school that a lot of the education that people can receive um, at a cost that they can afford is not nearly as high quality and doesn't lead to the same kinds of jobs or employment opportunity, that this stratification in education is hurting Chile because a lot of talented people can't get work or can't apply their talents productively in the economy. And what they're saying is that just like what you see in the rest of the world – Chile is getting much more stratified. That Chile's famous large middle class is beginning to shrink because we see a return to the kinds of cronyism and uh, the equivalent of an old boys network that favors the more prestigious institutions which many more people cannot afford as readily. And that in the end, just like that, you could argue that that hurt the U.S. economy. The same thing is going to happen um, in the Chilean economy. Uh, And they're while they're not, I guess, as open – I mean, I don't particularly find them as openly hostile to Piñera as El Mercurio is as openly hostile towards Camila Vallejo. Just when you look at the two, source, the two main sources of media in Chile, I guess the divide in society is much, much more apparent. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nick, I wonder the comparison. Uh, you live most of the year in the U.S., um, and yeah. we've seen what's been going on uh, with the last, I don't know, 10, 20 years with, with charter schools and magnet schools. Well, not magnet schools, but charter schools especially, um, as, as growing, especially uh, where we are in the in the Northeast. I say we are. I'm not there. You're not there. But we know what we mean. Uh, New York, uh, Washington, D.C. area. Um, is this a little bit like a possible future scenario? Like Chile is way ahead in terms of they've been experimenting or, well, living with these types of schools for a while. And now this is where they've come to. And that maybe the U.S. or at least places where these charter schools are now very popular, very trendy. Um, <laughs> is this going to come in like 10 years, 20 years to the, to the U.S. Uh, situation? Um. I don't think so, and I think the the primary reason – I mean if it's not already there, of course there are similarities with the charter, the charter school movement, this, that, and the other. But the, the issue that I don't think people talk very much about um, are the parents, uh, and I hate to, to sidetrack you a little bit on this one, but in the U.S., you don't see nearly as much parental involvement um, at lower levels, uh, I guess in, in more urban areas where people who are – either working class or even below that who perhaps are working or not working and are on public assistance 
instance, you don't see nearly as much investment involvement of parents in the education of children as you do in Chile. At all levels, education is important and education is valued throughout the country. And the demand for quality education is much greater at the parent level than it is in the United States. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that's going to be one of the key differentiators between the educational system in Chile and the educational system in the U.S. Whereas um, in the U.S. you might have a charter school. It probably would not fill up as quickly as, a, as a, the equivalent in Chile because a much smaller percentage of parents would know about it and would want to send their children there and would take the effort necessary to enroll their child to get them into that special kind of charter school. Um, well, you know, I guess the and another thing that you'd see more in the U.S. that you don't see as much in Chile are the outer ring, the outer suburban areas. A lot of parents will specifically go buy a house in a school district that's known for being very good, the public, free, and open school district, um, yeah. where you might not even find a private school. You know, where, where I grew up in uh, in Michigan, outside of a, a smaller city, I mean, one of the top 100 cities in the U.S., the, my parents specifically moved to East Grand Rapids because they had a good school system. And there was a neighboring suburb called uh, Forest Hills where a lot of parents moved because they had a good school system. And there, were only, there was really only one private school for a metropolitan area of around 300,000 people. And that was because, the, for the most part, the public schools there were really, really good. You don't see that as much in Chile. You don't see um, free public schools, free public primary education, elementary school, middle school, high school in Chile. And the differences uh, there, depending on where you live, are much, much greater in Chile than they are in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And while I think that a lot of the similarities are already here, that – and and a lot of the tensions I think are also similar, whereas because – the public school system is seen in Chile as a bastion for communists and a lot of the the faculties that teach, teachers that go into primary schools, tend to have a much more leftist approach to things. Uh, a right-wing government or right-wing politicians will be much more prone to supporting schools that are more towards their view, that don't have the leftist mm-hmm. influence, say, the public schools do. And I think you see a lot of the same thing in the U.S., for, I mean, perhaps for different reasons, you see people basically giving up on public schools and starting something new with charter schools. And you see movements for vouchers. You see movements for disinvestment in the public school system, where perhaps yeah. if you put that money into the public school system, you could make those schools better. Um, and mm-hmm. a lot of the resistance to that is because of Republican opposition to teachers unions, for example. And so there, there are similarities, similarities and there are differences um, – but I don't think we'll see anything like the education system in Chile in the U.S. anytime soon, unfortunately. Yeah. And in the meantime, the, the, the occupations there, uh, I say occupations because that's what I'm, what's on my mind, but the protests, mm-hmm. uh, they continue. I mean, is it a daily thing on the street that you see or is it a weekend thing since so many people are employed? It's very similar to the Occupy Wall Street protests, except for the fact that they've maintained a relatively similar size, and that you're starting to show some signs of cracking and some signs of, uh, of, of a peaceful movement perhaps being more violent. To, to go back to the example of my cousin, uh, they took a vote, all of the students inside the engineering school uh, took a vote, and they decided to go back to classes so that they wouldn't lose this whole semester. Um, mm-hmm. You know, all they all they had been going 
in for basically were exams, and they were essentially studying on their own. And they decided to return to classes, uh, which other faculties or other schools, departments, equivalents of in the University of Chile decided to stay on strike and lose their semesters. Uh, and so there's a little bit of tension there. And on the day that they were supposed to open up um, a building of the engineering school, um, a small group of students, it's, it's unclear whether they were part of the engineering school or not, actually went in very quickly, took over the building, and essentially sealed the doors shut so the building couldn't be used. And that was seen, and since it was a destructive action, the, for one of the first really destructive actions of the uh, protest to happen within the university, that started to open up a lot of rifts um, in a movement that basically had almost full support of students, faculty, and certain administrators. And so you're starting to see um, what's normally a peaceful movement start to have certain violent aspects to it. Mm. Okay. All right. And so uh, how much longer are you in country, by the way? So, so you, how much longer do you get to see these things in person? Um, I'm probably going to go back down there um, today, uh, just check things out, see how things are going. But uh, I should actually be heading back to the U.S. sometime today, hopefully. <laughs> Oh, today. Oh, uh, the, okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. The other, the other thing is that, that, well, that, that might not actually happen because a general strike was called for um, today and tomorrow. So, you know, we'll, we'll see how much longer I'm here. I might, I might have file another report in a couple of days. Okay. All right, Nick. Well, thanks a lot. I mean, especially for bringing the, the issue forward and, and sharing what you've observed and heard. Um, there are a couple of websites I might share in the show notes. Um, a lot of them are in Spanish, but I think a lot of us can handle that. And uh, the, the Education 2020 uh, people seem to have a lot of info up. And uh, and then there's the mixed reporting. I was looking in like Washington Post, and the more I read certain articles, the more I realized the person who wrote this absolutely hates the protests. <laughs> um, so, you know, you can pick and choose, and I'll, I'll, I'll post some stuff to go along with this audio. Um, and, and otherwise, another, I don't know. Any, yeah, thing- go ahead. I'm sorry. Another thing you have to remember is that a lot of the reporting that they take from uh, – and and you're you're starting to see a lot of the signs of sort of disinvestment in media and foreign bureaus and things like that where a lot of the reporting you'll see uh, is second or third-hand accounts. So the people who are taking perhaps Spanish translate – or Spanish to English translation of articles are picking up and making the biases of those Spanish articles a lot worse. Right. Yeah, I have definitely noticed that the more I read. But I think a good critical audience will be able to see that for themselves and and take whatever useful information they can from it anyway. Um, All right, Nick. Well, thanks a lot. And uh, with any luck, uh, uh, we will see each other in the next few months. We'll we'll discuss that off the program. (laughs) Definitely. Thank you so much, Mark. (laughs) 